to be here. It is almost 3. We'll study till 4.30, and then we'll take a break for supper and then study after that. So, we got a long session here. That ought to be fun. And uh, then we'll have a long break. Um, So, we uh, are ready for the sixth seal. Would somebody read chapter 6, verses 12 to 17? been John and saw that one. Six seals broken and amazing stuff. Terrifying stuff. Great earthquake. Sun goes black. Moon becomes blood. Stars fall from the sky. Skies split open and rolled up. The mountains and the islands are removed out of their place. That's just uh, quite a shocking picture. In context... This is, believe it or not, the beginning of the answer of the cry of those martyrs. Whoa! God really listens. And He's willing to move heaven and earth to punish their persecutors. And what you see is a terrified response from, count them, the kings, great men, commanders, rich, strong, slave, and free. Seven groups, counting everybody in the world. Uh, what are they trying to do? Hide from the wrath of God. One method is to go into the caves. The next method is... Ask the rocks to fall on them. Yes! I'll tell you what, there's not many times in history that people beg to be smothered in an avalanche of the rocks and the mountains, no less. But they are so terrified of the terrible wrath of the Lamb that anything is better than that. There are... you know, there's, there's, there's the thought that you run across every once in a while that uh, the God of the Old Testament has got a wrath, the God of the New Testament has got a love. Oh, yeah. um, Probably whoever said that had never taken a look at the book of Revelation. You know, there's... few. probably never taken a look at any of the Bible. That's true, <laughs> yes. It's much easier to come up with those ideas if you've never read the Bible. But, uh, uh, but this is a book certainly strong on the wrath of God and even the wrath here of the Lamb. And the question, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I mean, wow, who could stand in the face of this kind of wrath? This is the beginning 
I say that because we've got 16 more chapters to go. This is the beginning of God's answer to the cry of the martyrs. The beginning of the outpouring of his wrath against those who persecuted his people. And it's terrifying. It's overwhelming. It's incredible. Can you imagine being with John and seeing this? Now, I will mention as well that many of these things John sees are fairly commonly used figures of judgment, especially in the Old Testament prophets in Matthew 24 and some of those kinds of things. So this is not totally unheard of language if you are familiar with that background. And I think it would be very normal to see this as God's judgments uh, on uh, nations and peoples that oppose him and his people. All right, comments and questions on this sixth seal. I got a, a couple questions and comments. Um, Good. First, for the fifth and sixth seals, how do you picture this? I mean, because suddenly the fifth seal, there's an altar there that wasn't there before. So uh, do you picture it as the altar suddenly appearing in the midst of this ring of elders, or has it is it that just shifted and now there's an altar there that he sees? And yeah. the, same, the same thing with... With the sixth seal here, then, it's like the scene totally shifts. And it, I, I don't have any problem with that, because, like I say, that happens in dreams. Suddenly you're here, and suddenly you're someplace else, and that's just the way that it is. But just how do you picture it? Well, I think, I, I, you know, I would see this more as maybe action occurring in more than one place, even though we've used the theater illustration. You know, because the altar is... I'm assuming a permanent fixture in heaven at some, in some place, and he's seeing that. What he sees here, I think, is what's going on on the earth, really, he's seeing the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth. So, I, you know, I don't know if we ought to see this as, uh, you know, some closed-circuit picture of what's going on on the earth, or if, if suddenly, you know, the veil's pulled, he's able to look down and see these things. Uh, that's kind. Of, that's kind of my picture. Good question. Excellent to ask those visual questions. And we don't. I don't know if we have something definitive to tell us. But that's kind of what I see is that he's kind of, you know, looking at another scene in another place. And then my my other question, you know, that the sun black, uh, the moon blood. You know, that's that's the day of Pentecost. This is that the Joel is talking about. It's the same figures. Yes. And. Here, you know, it's clearly a judgment, and, and there we could say that was a judgment also. I agree. But that wasn't a judgment that is like this judgment, it seems to me, in the sense that, I mean, this just seems more violent. I mean, you see what I'm saying? Would you agree, or, I mean? Yes, although there's hardly anything in this that you can't find parallels to throughout the prophets and so forth. This seems to bring together more... <laughs> You know, so maybe in that sense it's more intense. But it really, almost every statement here is somewhere in the prophets. But, but you don't think that necessarily... Uh, I don't see this as, as being in first application the final judgment. Right, right, right. But, but uh, you know, when on the day of Pentecost, you would think, you know, the moon turned blood, there's going to be some great big war. Well, there wasn't. It was a judgment in a... And there was war against good and evil, and in heaven there's a, a war, but do you think that this is more physically oriented or not? I mean, I, I really don't know. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. 
Yes, I think both are. I think Joel, too, quoted in Acts 2, and actually, I'm probably going to preach about Acts 2 tomorrow, so this, we'll talk a little bit about this. But I think we are dealing with a, a judgment of God. I don't think that part of Joel 2, Acts 2, is fulfilled specifically on the day of Pentecost. I think it's, it's more or less looming, and um, you've got kind of two alternatives. The Spirit's poured out, or the judgment is coming. You need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved from that judgment and to be blessed by the Spirit. So I think, I think, and in Joel too, I think that's what you've got. I think you've got both the, the coming blessings of the Spirit and the judgments against those who are not faithful. And Joel 3 really deals with that aspect of it. So I see this as being judgment language for the wicked, in this case, for those who are persecuting Christians. Good, good questions. Eric. Well, I guess my, my first thing had to do with his, uh, one of his original statements. I think it's interesting that the first uh, four steals, you just see someone coming on stage or whatever. Uh, the fifth steal, the people under the altar said something. But in the sixth steal, you get a totally different perspective because yes. you see the people who are actually being. And, and then I thought about these people, and I didn't look at it from a judgment perspective. I saw it as more of an, an acknowledgment perspective. That no matter who you are, whether you're a king or a peasant or a slave, you will acknowledge who God is when the final day comes. Yeah, and they're they're terrified, you know, by this. This isn't the final final day in first application because we're we're seeing further things that you know. But yes, as the judgments poured out, they're terrified and they're overwhelmed. And what's really amazing as we go through this, yeah. You know, they know exactly where this judgment is coming from, but they're not willing to turn to the Lord. Yes, and we'll see that a lot more times in the book. That's the nature of wickedness. It hardens people. There are times when you'd think you'd cry uncle. They don't. I've see, you see that. I mean, you see wicked people dying, literally dying because of their wickedness, still blaspheming God, and still, you know, immoral and irreverent and whatever. And you're thinking, well, what would it take? Well, the, the truth is, nothing. There, there are impenitent people who nothing will humble them. Eric? And, you know, we look at this and it looks funny, but, you know, sometimes we ourselves, all they're doing is trying to find a way of escape. They're saying, hide us. Make sure that God won't see us. Yes. And we're going to be okay. Yes. Yes. Good point. You're right, David. Yes. Um, it introduces the altar here. Then we get we get over into chapter eight and mentions the angel next to the altar in a couple of the passages there, and then into chapter eleven, beginning in the end of the chapter, both refer to the temple. Is that part of trying to visualize this, that the altar and the temple, like in the Old Testament, that, that layout mentally? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think maybe the best way to look at this would be that the tabernacle was a earthly model of the heavenly prototype. And so that what you've got in the tabernacle is really just a reflection of what you have in heaven with the altar and the tabernacle, I mean, they're in the presence of God, you know. So what you had on the earth was just kind of a, a faint reflection of that. 
Good comments and questions. Other thoughts on chapter 6 and the 6th seal? Annie. long time ago, at some point, someone gave a lesson. And I have written here in this last, the latter part of chapter 6 that this is the judgment against Rome. We're not there yet. Okay. You know, I will say a little bit more about some historical things eventually, but I'm not sure we're to the point where we have a good basis to say that yet. So. All right. Now, chapter and verse divisions weren't in the original, and, and sometimes they're helpful. In this case, it's a good chapter division, but it's still a story. You know, going to the next chapter doesn't mean we're starting to look at something different. This is still what's happening. And so, if you remember that, that scroll, how many, how many seals were on it? How many have we had broken? What are we anticipating? And what would you be doing if you were John? Sitting on the edge of your seat. You see what six was like? Can you imagine what seven will be? And it's just like a made-for-TV movie. What happens when you get to the most dramatic moment? She's got the knife at his neck. What happens? Exactly. Now a word from our sponsor. That's chapter seven. And there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that after we look at it. So chapter seven, verses one through eight. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were seen. Alright, so... Instead of the seventh seal at this point, you see the four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds, keeping any wind from blowing. And you've got this angel that comes from the sunrise that's got God's seal, who cries and tells those four angels not to let any harm come on the earth until something else has happened. So we are more or less saying, hold it, stop everything. Don't even let the wind blow 
until God's servants have been sealed on their foreheads. Now, that tells you that nothing stirs in God's creation without His permission. He controls it all. And if He says, stop the wind, we stop it, and we wait, and we allow something to happen that needs to happen first. Now, this delay to seal the servants of God on their forehead would certainly heighten the suspense. But it's got some other purposes as well. Um, I may make another comment or two about some specific things, but let's look at the general idea of this. Um, This sealing of the servants of God on their forehead. We really need, again, the Old Testament background. Now, this seems a little tedious, at least every once in a while to me, when I have to go back and do this. Ezekiel 9 is where we're going. But but think of it this way. I think Jesus and John, in Revelation, are assuming these people know their Bible. They wouldn't necessarily have to go back. They would know this. How many of us know Ezekiel? If we don't, we ought to. And we probably need to start studying these books. But for us, we have to go back and actually understand the context of Ezekiel so that we can understand the background of this figure. So Ezekiel 9 is really helpful. Now, you really need to understand Ezekiel 9 in its context, preferably. In in short version, Ezekiel is seeing the terrible, idolatrous abominations in the temple in Ezekiel 8 that are going to require God to leave the temple and allow it to be destroyed. God is going to bring his wrath because of the abominations occurring in the temple. But that brings us to chapter 9, Ezekiel 9. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand, Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a riding case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And then the glory of the, the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the riding case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city. Even though the midst of Jerusalem put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. Now there's the background. You know, God is, 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 is going to punish because of the abominations occurring in Jerusalem. And he's got the executioners ready to do it. But before he lets the executioners go out to slay, he has the guy put a mark on the foreheads of the righteous ones, the ones who don't like the abominations that are occurring. And then he sends the executioners out To kill everybody except the ones that are marked. So what did the mark do? Protected. Exempted from God's wrath the righteous ones who were marked. With that background, Revelation 7 is easier to understand. You have in the sixth seal the outpouring the wrath of God that's causing everybody 
to, to, to be terrified. But he said, wait, stop. Don't do anything. God's servants are to be sealed. They are to be protected and exempted from the wrath of God. I would say not necessarily from consequences, but from the actual punishment of God that comes from, with these events. And so you see how many sealed. Now, according to verse 3, the 144,000 represent what? The bondservants of God. Now, he goes through rather redundantly, it seems to me, each tribe and the 12,000. You know, if you were reading 5 through 8, you probably wished Annie would have just kind of skipped over those. It seems a little, you know, unnecessary. It's not unnecessary. There's a real point being made by that. The point is, he doesn't leave any of them out. He gets all the servants of God from all the tribes. Now, why 12,000 from each tribe? That's where I think the symbolism of the numbers comes in, Don. He does leave out the tribe of Dan. We'll talk about that in a second. You're right. That's a very good observation. The 12,000, 12 is a number that does apply to the people of God. You especially think about the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. And so you, and a thousand would be your perfect number. We use a thousand that way. You know, I told you a thousand times. You know, so 12,000 times the 12 tribes, you get your 144,000. All the people of God are sealed on their foreheads. However, you're right. The, if you look at these tribes, there's a few irregularities. It's a little odd. Um, one irregularity is you have the tribe of Joseph, not Ephraim. Which I'm assuming Joseph is there in place of Ephraim. Exactly why, I'm not sure on that one. But you do have Manasseh, but you don't have Ephraim, you do have Joseph. So that, I think, would be Ephraim. But you don't have Dan. But you still have 12. How did that work? What do you have in place of Dan? Levi. Wasn't Levi one of the 12? When Joseph had his two children, he took the place of Levi. Yes, because he was received the rights of the firstborn, double portion of the inheritance. So each of Joseph's sons was a separate tribe, Manasseh and Ephraim. Which meant there were really 13 tribes. Were there really 13 tribes? Uh-oh. Yes, there really were. However, we speak of the 12 tribes and not the 13. Why? Because Levi wasn't given an inheritance. Levi never received a territorial inheritance, fitting the condemnation back from Genesis 34 and Genesis 49. Levi received cities in the other territories. Basically, four from each tribe. That's not exactly right. It's pretty close. Um, so you have Levi added, which would make 13, but we take out Dan. Now the question is, why isn't Dan in here? Uh-oh. I think I know the answer. Uh-oh. Well, I, I've, I've heard people say Ephraim and Dan left off because that's where the calves Uh-oh. were, you know, Uh-oh. when the northern kingdom Uh-oh. split. No. I think that's part of the answer. I'm not so sure about Ephraim. I think that's part of the answer with Dan, but it's not everything. What else do you know about Dan? Uh-oh. 
This is where, you know, a book like Revelation is fascinating, but it draws on everything else in the Bible. What was Dan's big failure? No, Anna? I think I do, but I don't really want to fall flat on my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you might as well. <laughs> Dan never did what? Never conquered its territory. Judges won, and therefore did what? They did. That wasn't what I was thinking first. They went up and conquered a whole different territory, the city of Laish. This is Judges 17 and 18. And, and not the territory God gave them at all. And do you remember Micah and his idolatrous shrine paid for with the money he'd stolen from his mother? And, and full equipped even with a Levite priest, a guy named Jonathan? And the spies that Dan sent out to find the place they could migrate to and they thought they were tough enough to conquer had stopped in. And so when they take the whole tribe up there, they stop by Micah's idol shrine and rob all the idols and grab the priest as well and offer him a bigger salary to go up and be their priest. And they start their own religion up there. Of all the outrageously unfaithful things, there's really about nothing positive you can say about Dan. Never take the inheritance, period. Take a whole different place and just start out with their absolutely own worship center. Uh, outrageously. I mean, they, they do what Jeroboam did only worse way before Jeroboam was ever thought about. I say Dan's not in here because we don't see Dan as being a bondservant of God. We see Dan as being a totally unfaithful tribe. These are the faithful servants of God. And you just don't have it in Dan the way he's conceptualizing this here. We understand that we are looking at a picture here and an application. It's unlikely that there were precisely 12,000 faithful from each tribe we actually understand that the faithful would include a lot of Gentiles that aren't physically a part of any tribe. But it's a way of saying every servant of God is sealed. They will not be hurt by God's wrath. They will not be the objects of God's wrath. That's what I see. There's so much in these things that I think are really cool. I like seeing them. I like thinking about them. And, and it's cool to see <coughs> that you know, the Bible's all one book. And there's so much interrelationship of everything. The more you see, the more you see. And the more amazing it is. I'll make a point here that I make pretty often, but you don't hear me real often, so I get to make it here. Let's say you wanted to know everything there was to know about the book of Revelation. Your, your whole goal in life was to understand as much as possible about the book of Revelation. What would be the best way to do that? Let me suggest two paths and tell you which one would work better. One is you study Revelation all the time. It's the only thing you ever study. You study Revelation 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The second is you study everything in the Bible constantly. Which one will understand Revelation better? I say the guy who studies everything in the Bible. We miss it when we think we can major on one book and we can learn more. No, it all fits together. 
you will never understand one book without understanding all of them. The thing that's limiting your understanding of any book in the Bible is your lack of understanding of any of the other books, which is why we have to constantly study it all. And any part we're lacking is contributing to our not fully grasping all the other parts. It's all one story. And so it's like looking at a picture. You see only one piece of the picture. You don't see it as well, even if you know every detail of that one part, as if you can see the whole picture. That's what puts that in its place properly. So if you didn't know Judges, the fact that Dan's not in here, you're never going to figure out by the book of Revelation itself. You need to know Judges. And we need to know all these other things. I think, I think there's just so much value in seeing. We should not become a specialist on just one piece of the Bible. We need the whole thing to understand the whole thing. That's my soapbox. Comments and questions uh, on this uh, first eight verses of chapter 7. Eric. I was thinking about uh, the fact that Dan isn't in here. Uh, and I'm trying to place myself in the position of if I were a Jew reading this book, I'm assuming I would immediately know Dan's not there, right? And I would start if you thinking, knew anything about the Bible, yeah. Right, and I would start thinking, okay, what did Dan do? And you know how the Jews had this, that we're Jews, we're saved. But this says, no, those who are saved are those who do what I want them to do. So even though Dan was one of the tribes, he that tribe didn't do what God wanted them to do, therefore they're not there. Which would tell me that I need to follow God's word, and not just because I'm a Jew, but because I'm someone that's doing God's sure. will. Sure, good point. I agree. Other thoughts? <coughs> Have you heard any ideas of why Ephraim's not there and Joseph is? No, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I could speculate some things, but nothing that I think is really worthwhile. Okay. All right, uh, that's half of this uh, break in the action word from our sponsor. The other half is the other half of, uh, of what we need to see in this chapter, 9 to 17. standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what does he see now? Multitude can't be numbered. Yeah, huge multitude where? Standing before the throne of the Lamb. 
exactly? Standing before God? That might answer our question from 6.17, who is able to stand? These people were able to stand in verse 9. They stand before the throne, before the Lamb. And what's the spirit here? What's the uh, uh, kind of the atmosphere of the occasion? Giving glory. Glory, praise, and maybe even something else. What? Thanksgiving celebration. It's kind of a festive occasion. They've got the palm branches in their hand. They're celebrating and praising God for His salvation. It's a very joyous picture. Wonderful picture. These great multitude that are, are, are rejoicing before the throne. Praising God. The angels and, and the elders and the living, living creatures are joining with them in praise to God. One of the elders asked John, Do you know where, who these guys are and where they're from? And John said, you know, and he tells him, who are these people? The ones who came out of the tribulation. Yes, they're the ones who've come out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's a paradox, isn't it? Ever known blood to make anything white? But the Lamb's blood makes us white. Um, but but they've come out of the Great Tribulation. wonder what they did or what happened that caused them to come out of this Great Tribulation. They died. You ever thought about death that way? Death is they're coming out of the Great Tribulation and joining the celebration around the throne. Quite a way of looking at that. That's what happened to them. And for this reason, they're before the throne of God, verse 15. And wow, look at this. This is a beautiful picture. They serve him day and night in his temple. The one who sits on the throne spreads his tabernacle over them so he's right with them. They hunger, thirst no more. Sun doesn't beat down on them and no heat. The lamb, this is cool, the lamb's their shepherd. (laughs) The lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's wonderful. That's so comforting. Encouraging. I realize verses were put in by man. This is quite a contrast. Look at chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. And then look at chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. There's really no comparison there, is there? Well, which side do you want to be on? Now, so that means in this chapter, we see two pictures. We see the 144,000 sealed on their forehead. We see the great multitude in celebration. Now, what's the difference between these two pictures? The 144,000 show you who? The faithful on the earth. And these great multitude is the faithful in heaven, the ones who've died. Now that's pretty cool. If you're one of the servants of God, you, your, your, your alternatives are both awesome. Either you're on the earth, sealed and protected and cared for by God, or you die and go to heaven, where you are with the Lord in this wonderful picture of joy and praise and celebration. Wow. 
You might not have looked at it that way, especially if you were being persecuted as a Christian in the first century, but the truth is, you're in great shape either way you go. Comments? Eric? I have a question. Uh, we're saying that the, the tribulation is the persecution of the Christian virus? Yes. You can go back to even like one nine for that. John was your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and so forth. Uh, however you picture, you know, the sixth seal and uh, the fifth seal, clearly you're back to the scene of the throne now with the yes. four people around yes. that, 24 elders, yes. and now there's another ring around that. So you're back to where you started again. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is totally an aside, uh, but every once in a while we have to answer some things that are said about these passages that are wrong. Don't get diverted when we do that. That's certainly not the point of the passage, but you know how this passage is abused by the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? What do they say about the 144,000? Yeah, those are the ones that go to heaven. But what do they say about the other servants of God? They live forever in paradise on earth. And that's a much larger number. They got it backwards. Yes, exactly. They take it from here, but they got it backwards. They've got the 144,000 being the ones in heaven, and the great multitude being the ones on the earth. This picture has 144,000 being on the earth, and the great multitude in heaven. Now... I assume when the 144,000 die, they'll join the great multitude in heaven. But in this picture, it's just exactly the reverse of what they do. Which, oh shoot, when false teachers try to abuse passages, they just make a total mess out of them. And they don't study them in their context. Uh, and I don't know that there's a great answer that JWs have for this. I asked one of them one time, and and he made the lame excuse that uh, the earth is before the throne of God, and therefore that the multitude was was on the earth before the throne, but that's clearly not what that's saying. So, I think that's a pretty solid argument against that point they make, and this is their passage. Uh, But, again, I I almost hate it that false teachers, you know, have to be answered, because it it kind of distracts you from the real, you know, message and excitement of the passage. Yes, Scott? Why do you think, in verse 13, you know, first one of the elders asked John, who are they? And John says, well, you know who they are. And then the elder says, yeah, I do. Here they are. Why? I mean, that just seems an interesting interplay there. You have that a lot. Look at Zechariah, for example. It's typical of apocalyptic literature. I don't really know. It almost looks like just kind of a way of getting to the point. You know, the elder will ask John. John will admit his ignorance and that he needs for him to tell him. And then he'll tell him. You know, it's almost like, I don't know, we might do that sometimes. We might ask a question. Let the person say, well... You, you know, I don't. Okay, then I'll tell you. You know, but but you do have it a lot in Zechariah, maybe a little bit in some of the other apocalyptic books, uh, maybe a little bit in Daniel. Yeah, Don. I wonder if it's another false teaching, verse 9, about the palms in their hands, that Catholics pick a Sunday and they get Palm Sunday. They mostly take that, though, from the triumphal entry. The triumphal. Yeah. Yeah. Where they had palms in their hands they also. The Sunday before yeah. Easter okay. Sunday yeah. as a... They make it a religious holiday based upon the triumphal injury. Right. Yes. Uh, going back to the who are these people 
John going, you know, I, passages like this remind me that these people are human. Because yeah, imagine you're seeing right. this. I mean, you would not yeah. be focused on who they are. You'd just be going, look at all these people. And you just want to go, well, who are they? You're like, oh, wait a minute. And you realize you're not really focusing. You think you are. But it just makes me think he's a human being. Yeah. Absolutely. You see that John's thoughts are sort of being directed because they need to be. Yeah. Other comments and questions? Excellent thoughts. Really good level of participation and good kinds of questions and comments. Well, you know where we're at still. After all this, we're still waiting on that seventh seal and I suspect the delay only makes it more eagerly or fearfully anticipated what in the world is going to happen after you'd seen the uh, sixth seal when the seventh seal is broken. And, uh, well, we'll see. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and it was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. All right. Uh, so we open, finally, the Lamb does, the seventh seal... And what happens? Silence for a half hour. Whoa, wouldn't that increase the suspense? <laughs> Drive me nuts. <laughs> and you're wondering why. Hold that question for a moment. Come on in, Dan. You're good. We're in, uh, we're just starting Revelation 8. So, where we're at. Um, so, you know, you're wondering why the silence. Well, meantime you kind of start realizing what's going to be the structure of this seventh seal. Right? Because what do you see? What do you see in verse 2? Seven angels, seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is actually going to be subdivided into seven trumpets. We're in the beginning of uh, Revelation 8, Matt. Um, and what do trumpets do? Announce. Announce. Often announce what? The coming of the enemy. So they're often warnings. You might keep that in your head. But that's what we're going to have in the seventh seal then, is seven trumpets. But then he sees another angel having a golden censer with a lot of incense to add to the prayers of the saints on the golden altar. And the smoke of the incense and the saints' prayers go up before God. Now that's interesting. We're again going back to the cry and prayers of God's people. We've had that back in chapter 5, verse 8. We have that really with the souls underneath the altar in the fifth seal. And now we've got it again. A lot of emphasis on the prayers going up. But here in my judgment, not just emphasis on the prayers going up, but emphasis on God hearing and responding. 
I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I think that's why we've got the silence. I think the silence is stopping everything for God to listen carefully to the cries of his people, which is really amazing. And what you see is the censer that has the incense that accompanies the prayer. What happens with that censer in verse 5? Unto the earth. It's filled with fire from the altar and thrown down to the earth. And what happens? Yeah. Thunder, sounds, lightning, earthquake. We've seen that before. We have chapter 4 and verse 5, and we'll see it again in even intensified format. But here what I'm seeing is, as God hears those prayers, He's responding. The saints are crying out because of the persecution, because of the, the tribulation, and God is immediately sending back answers. Not the ultimate, but God is responding immediately to their prayers. So much of this book shows God answering the cry of His people. I really think that if there's... You know, besides the themes that relate to God, just His control and sovereignty and His purpose being fulfilled, that the next biggest theme in the book is God answering the prayers and cries of His people. We are going to see all throughout the rest of this book constant references back to 5.8 to the fifth seal and to this picture. The judgments God brings will be an answer to the cries of his people. God silences everything to hear his people and to respond to their prayers. There's another point I'll make in a minute, but I'll pause. Do you have some comments and questions? Yes, Eric. I have a question. Uh, verse 1 says there was a stop for half an hour. Do you think that verses 2 through 5a is what's happening during that half hour? Yeah, I do. Okay. I do. Yes, Scott. For the, the seven angels, we really, they weren't mentioned before. In this throne scene, that's but, correct. You know, we've seen references to seven angels earlier on. I think a different set. Yeah, yeah okay. I do. They seem to have a different function. And God's got an apple supply, so he can... Yeah. <laughs> the, the one other point I wanted to mention, this may be a little too technical, um, but... Well, two more points I want to mention, but, but this one might be a little technical. But do you see any issues in verse 3? Is this the first time we've read about the altar? Where did we read about it before? Yeah, the souls underneath the altar. But now do you see a problem? Yes. Not just that. Not just that. Look at this in 8.3. Think about the altar back in 6.9. Is there, there, is there an issue there? How does he describe this altar in 8.3? Before the throne? Yeah. Oh, different type of altar. What altar is this altar? It's the altar of incense. Exactly. It's the golden altar. It's the incense altar. And he particularly connects it with the incense. 
But we have assumed that the altar back in chapter 6 was the bronze sacrifice altar because they were sacrificed on that altar and their blood was poured out at its base. That is kind of a question mark in understanding this. You know, should we see there being two altars? One, the altar in chapter 6, the burnt offering altar that will be referred to some other times. And here, the golden altar of incense, which also will be referred to again in like 9.13. Or should we see perhaps there's kind of a combination of the two altars in heaven? Kind of, of, of a conflation. I don't really know the answer to that. Um, but that is kind of a, a question mark as you're studying that if you're familiar with the tabernacle imagery and the two different altars. I just kind of threw that out. But, uh, Scott. You know, the New American Standard says that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. That would imply that their prayers were incense also, in a sense, wouldn't it? That he's burning incense and he's adding it to theirs? Or maybe he's adding it to their prayers. Their prayers go up. I take it as the incense making the prayers smell better so that God will respond even more favorably to their prayers. Annie. But aren't our prayers um, described as a fragrant aroma to they, God? They are. Okay. Yes. You, you have in various passages figures that if you had to combine them all would contradict each other. As you always do, what is what is Jesus in the sacrificial system? He's the, so he's the sacrifice. He's the priest. He's also the altar. He's also the tabernacle. You know, and so forth and so. You know, I mean, you just look at him in different aspects in different passages. But if you try to combine them all, it doesn't work. So, the other thing I think is interesting. Look again at verse four. The smoke going up before God. This is the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the people. I may not get to all these things, so I'm going to just throw this out as just an example of something that you need to be looking for. Look at 1411. You won't understand the context yet. You don't know this already. But this is the uh, punishment of the beast worshippers, 1411. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever. And then look at 19.3. This is Babylon. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, what I see is that the prayers of the saints and the smoke of the incense going up before God leads later in the book to the smoke of the torment of the persecutors and the Christians going up. You know, you've got that symmetry. Their prayers go up and they are answered in a parallel way. You know, there's so much of that stuff going on in Revelation. The more you read it and study it, the more things you see. It's what I said last night when we began. The thing that limits our understanding of Revelation, we don't know the book. We don't see those things because we don't read it very much. The more you read it, the more you're going to see. And the more is just going to stand out to you what he's really saying. It's fascinating the more you see. I think Revelation has to be one of the most, you know, carefully and intricately constructed books in the, in the Bible. There's just so much in it like that. All right. Must be the man who reads it and understands. Amen. Amen. All right, anything you want to say through a five?